This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. He's like a little cholo gangster from the hood. But at the same time, but at the same time, he coaches kids jujitsu on a Sunday morning and goes on bike rides with the elderly. He makes gun signs with the right hand and animal balloons with the left hand. So you're a credit to the community. Fuck you. Fuck Fuck you. you. I don't give a fuck what you say, motherfucker. Yeah, thugging on mine, motherfucker. What you got? So this is a fight study episode, and if you're unfamiliar with what that is, is where we take the latest fights, whether it be MMA, boxing, or sometimes even something else, and we do a critical analysis of it, as you would for an academic topic. And we also use the study as a model to teach the art and science of combat sports. So less about how to throw a punch and more about why we throw punches, when to throw them, distance, tactics, and strategies. Along with that, we do interviews with people we find interesting. So it's not just combat sports related. So we're like the Joe Rogan experience for nerds on the left. There are a lot of things we like to cover outside of just combat sports. With that said, MMA is a love for many of us. But we at Southpaw are explicitly pro-athlete. And I don't mean we are professional athletes but that we are pro the worker in combat sports, which happens to be the athletes. So with that, I have to mention that the business practices of the UFC sucks. Dana White. Fuck you. Joe Silva. Fuck you. And as long as I'm on a roll, let me add Vince McMahon. Fuck you. Dave Portnoy. Fuck you. But Nate Diaz. You're cool. And fuck you, I'm out. And actually, that brings me to another point. Rather than only punching the fash, you can also Stockton slap them as demonstrated by Nate Diaz on Dana White. A slap can be just as effective, more humiliating, easier to aim, and less risky to wrists and hands than punches. And it'll leave a red palm print for days on their face. Think inglorious bastards. No point breaking knuckles or wrists on some Nazi. A Nazi slap is a legit self-defense move against the Nazi salute. So with all that said, let's get into UFC 241, Cormier versus Miocic 2. So what was learned by both fighters in this second fight? DC learned he could take heavyweight hits from a legit knockout artist. And Miocic learned that DC at heavyweight has legit knockout power. So right off the bat, Miocic is fighting from further out, trying to make use of his reach and height advantage. So this time around, his team wanted to use more range strikes. But DC quickly answered that with leg kicks. DC also had new ways of fainting, going low for a takedown, then coming up with a hook. So in trying to keep a distance, Miocic just ended up getting hit more while sitting back. And being more gun-shy this time around and respecting DC's power too much, he was hesitant, 
which allowed DC to get in on him and even on a single leg slam. The knockout in their first fight seemed to loom very large in the first round in the mind of Stipe Miocic. The initial goings looked a lot like a straight puncher versus an infighter who likes to throw hooks. Except ever since Miocic started knocking dudes out, he fell in love with his right hand. And since then, he became a different kind of striker. One who doesn't utilize his reach the same way as he used to. One who tends to stand more square. One who tends to throw shorter punches. One who only uses the jab to set up the right rather than someone who consistently jabs. One who only headhunts. With Miocic, there wasn't much variation. Miocic was largely reacting to what DC was doing rather than being offensive. And on the ground, it was DC who was outscrambling Miocic. So more than in the stand-up, where DC was doing really well, he had even a more decisive advantage on the ground. But since DC was doing so well standing, he later on in the fight mostly abandoned the wrestling. And I told you about some of his new setups for strikes. Well, if you abandon the wrestling, you lose a lot of those setups, which he did in the later rounds. But up until the very end, it was DC who was winning the fight. But it wasn't a domination and then a come-from-behind victory. There were small things that were building that would pay off in the end. DC, with his shorter reach in the heavyweight and light heavyweight divisions, gets people into these hand-fighting engagements. And once they accept the hand fight, they lose their reach advantage. And with Miocic, as I said, he started out the first round more bladed and fighting from further out. But quickly, he started fighting again more squared up from DC's range. And DC would seamlessly hand fight to throwing hooks, straight punches, uppercuts, elbows, and even some back fists from this position. Miocic from round one through three didn't mix up his strikes. It was very predictable, which DC was able to avoid by just moving his head, rolling with the punches, and using his George Foreman-style outstretched arm parries. Miocic showed almost no defense in rounds one through three, just toughness and chin, but zero head movement, zero footwork, zero blocking. And historically, Miocic throws at most two punches at a time, no body shots and no hooks. You don't need to be a defensive master if you only have to worry about straight punches coming from the left and the right. Another thing about Miocic is he doesn't faint. He's been an effective striker, however, because of his speed and the way he mixes in his wrestling, his accuracy, and an uncanny ability to pivot and press off his back foot in a directional change to throw his right, which is to say he can move and strike really well. And he also has power. These things in combination can overcome a lot of things and then add conditioning, toughness, and an ability to adjust. And this makes the greatest heavyweight champion in UFC and perhaps MMA history. But like many great heavyweight champions, they start to lose variety as they grow older. And rather than relying on all their tools, they begin to only use a few. They specialize. And Miocic, mostly abandoned the jab and relied on his right, like Fedor did. And even instead of throwing a jab at all, it would be more of a pawing left just to gauge distance. And also the way Miocic trains his punching. Whoever his pad holder is, the way they hold the pads for him, they meet Miocic halfway into the strike, which trains you to square up, 
and also makes you not fully extend your punches. Plus, it has you standing closer to your opponent. So I wonder if the reason Miocic started throwing shorter punches and used to throw longer punches in the past was because he was a legit amateur boxer who trained at a boxing gym. And then when he went to an MMA school, the pad holders there began to hold the pads in a more Muay Thai style, squared up and in close to set up clinches. Now, this is my speculation, as that's what I've seen happen unintentionally in the gym before. But this all plays into DC's short guy game, where DC blends his Greco and upper body wrestling and collar ties and wrist grabs to strikes. One really clever thing DC does is to wrist grab with his right hand and jab with his left. It works really well, but because he collar ties so much, he sometimes flicks out an open hand rather than a jab, and he pokes the eyes with his fingers, which he did several times to Miocic. Now, since Miocic strictly strikes to the head, DC also began to mix in pull counters, where he would just pull his head back, let Miocic miss, then hit him with his own punches, basically baiting the head striker. And also, since DC is actively fainting, it had Miocic biting on moves that weren't there, which allowed DC to close in on him and hit him some more. But if you're only throwing ones and twos, you should be able to start gauging range. So in the second and third round, Miocic was beginning to find that range and hit DC before he could close in. In fact, he was hitting DC as he was closing in. So as I mentioned previously, the end didn't come as a surprise because there were things Miocic was beginning to lay the groundwork for. Eventually, Miocic began to mix in takedowns with his strikes. So along with finding his range, you got takedowns happening now. But Miocic was still relying way too much on his right. He would lose whatever advantage he would set up by freezing while trying to aim his right hand and just end up getting hit by DC, who wasn't always aiming or being precise, but just throwing out volume. And this kept disrupting Miocic's aim and timing. But then round four was a new fight. And as I mentioned, Miocic is great at adjustments. And that's the future of coaching, really. It was at first just motivational. The coach just kind of yelled at you to raise your spirit. Then later on, it was game planning and instructions and execution. Now it's game planning, but also mid-fight adjustments and new instructions. This is something we saw here with Miocic that we didn't see in the previous UFC with Liz Karmusha's team against Valentina Shevchenko. But ultimately, it's up to the fighter to listen. DC's corner told DC that Stipe had already begun to find his distance, so to wrestle more. DC in the post-fight interview said he didn't listen to his corner, and that's what he regretted. And maybe Miocic did listen to his corner, and they made the adjustments. But I don't know. Miocic might have come up with the adjustments on his own on the fly. Because Miocic is that kind of fighter. He can do that on his own. He can learn and adapt. So what happened in round four? If you saw the fight, you'll think from all the highlights and from the UFC commentators and on comments on Twitter and YouTube videos that are already online that it was all about the body shots. But that's only part of the story. So I already told you that Miocic began to find his range as DC was coming in but kept getting caught while aiming his right. So his left was pretty useless. But then he began to mix in some takedowns. And then he began to mix in kicks. And because his right was nullified, 
he began to attack more with his left, jabs and hooks, and left hooks to the body. Another thing he did was to start sidestepping and changing direction. He would circle one way like Eddie Alvarez is known to do, then circle the other way like a matador, leaving his opponent out of position. Before the final stanza, Miocic did that to DC, had him rushing forward to clinch with no one there. And then there's the head movement. Miocic finally began to slip to the side and throw a punch while he was at it. Now, another reason DC might not have been able to wrestle isn't purely that he fell in love with striking or because he ignored his corner. A lot of fighting is automatic decision making. So something was automatically making him change his mind about wrestling. And throughout the four rounds, Miocic was consistently nailing DC with an uppercut every time he ducked his head down, which was forcing DC to stand upright and not go low. And with the wrestling and ducking down out of play, DC's strikes became even less effective. So by the end of round four, DC was actually starting to get dismantled. And also since DC only had defenses for head strikes, he had zero defense for the body. This actually came to play when he got knocked out by John Jones by head kick. Because he was getting kicked to the body and he had no defense, he doubled down and really tried to defend and got kicked in the head. So the inability to defend to the body has been a consistent weakness. And as I mentioned, Miocic had already started slipping and sidestepping. I think he threw a body shot at first as instinct, then saw how well it worked. Then he tried it again and it was undefended. That's when he did what any other trained boxer would do. Once you find a punch an opponent can't defend, keep doing it until something changes and you need to stop doing it. So right before the final body shot, Miocic sidestepped DC. They squared up again. Miocic went for the left hook to the body. DC tried to grab Miocic by the head. Miocic slipped, sidestepped, and pivoted. DC's hands were already out of position because of the grab attempt. And he was also expecting another body shot, just like what I mentioned in the fight against John Jones, protecting the body and not protecting the head, which he was only doing most of the fight. And then I mentioned Miocic's ability to change direction and pivot and throw his right hand. Well, he did it again, slipped, sidestepped, pivoted, pushed off the back foot and threw the right. And from there, it was academic. Punches up against the fence until referee Herb Dean has seen enough. And it ended in four minutes and nine seconds of round four. There's one more note. And I want to talk about refereeing. I do think that referees need to take breaks. Like they shouldn't work every event. And in fact, I don't think they should be constantly working. Every few years, I think they should be reevaluated. Because I do believe the longer you do it, the more conditioned and desensitized you get. And this is why I think veteran referees go later and later in their stoppages. Because I don't know if DC needed all those punches when he was crumpled down already. Next up, we have Nate Diaz versus Anthony Pettis in the co-main event. This fight was the people's main event, and it absolutely delivered. Nate Diaz won a unanimous decision over Pettis, with only one judge giving Pettis a round. In the preview for this fight, I talked about the kind of strategy that Diaz would have to utilize in order to win, and he did it almost to the letter. I don't want to give myself too much credit. Diaz has been fighting for a long time, so his A-game and habits are studied and broken down by a lot of MMA analysts. 
Diaz still managed to surprise all of us by adding a few new wrinkles and tricks to his arsenal. Even though Diaz fights Southpaw, he threw off Pettis by constantly stand switching in the first round, making it hard for Pettis to plant his feet and start swinging leg kicks. As the fight wore on, he switched to orthodox almost exclusively, and you could tell that Pettis was thrown off by this. This also made it much more difficult for Pettis to find his range and start chopping down Diaz. And if Pettis' team expected just one stance throughout the fight, they were in for a rude awakening. Even while moving forward, Diaz made sure to constantly raise his lead leg and to make sure that any low kicks would be checked. And when he landed on his feet, he planted it hard just in case Pettis would try and punt it out. By stance switching and stepping hard down, onto his feet, Diaz also gave himself an extra boost in step and covered range much quicker. The way Diaz was moving around and stalking Pettis towards the fence was reminiscent of how Tony Ferguson and Max Holloway were able to pressure and corner him. Even though Diaz isn't as slick as either of them, Diaz moves in with hooks to keep you from escaping to his open side, and once he's close enough to touch you, you can expect the clinch to follow. Once Diaz clinched Pettis, he landed short hooks to the head and constantly threw knees to the legs of Pettis. During the clinch breaks is where Pettis truly shined, as he was able to land some great hooks to the head and body of Diaz. The first round was Pettis' best, but even then it was clear that Diaz was going to give him problems as the fight wore on. Pettis seemed to be waiting on Diaz throughout the whole fight, and was looking for moments to land that one strike that could end the fight. Opponents know this and it's recently become Pettis' MO. Pettis will either start picking you apart at range if you stand at just the right distance, or he'll wait until you slip for a moment and he'll try to crack you with a high kick or a knockout punch. Diaz was almost never exclusively looking for the knockout. He knew that if he dragged Pettis in deep waters, it would be enough to fold the former lightweight champion. A great example of this was in round one, where Pettis timed the knee beautifully and it hit Diaz clean in the midsection, but Diaz used that as an opportunity to grab a single leg and take Pettis down. From then on, for the rest of the round, Diaz kept the fight on the ground and went for sub after sub and roughed up Pettis with some ground and pound. If Pettis knocked out Diaz cold with that knee, we'd all be talking about how great of a striker Pettis is, his timing is impeccable, and how he's reborn at welterweight. Instead, the sequence of events just confirmed what we know about the current Pettis. He either gets you clean on the counter and finishes you, or he gets timed himself and he falls into his opponent's traps. This shouldn't have come as a surprise, but the odds makers still had Diaz as the underdog in the fight. Perhaps it was because Pettis was coming off a spectacular KO over Steven Thompson, and Diaz had a three-year layoff. Despite all this, the fact remains that Diaz is a bad style matchup. I mentioned Ferguson and Holloway before, and it bears repeating. Diaz doesn't have the same style as either of them, but there's still habits of them that he incorporates into his own. The sheer volume and commitment to body strikes of Holloway are also seen in Diaz, and Ferguson's awkward stalking and forward pressure are also present in Diaz as well. There are a couple things that Diaz did in this fight that he seldom did before. Other than the stance switching, Diaz also started shooting in earlier and going for attacks on the ground. In the second McGregor fight, it wasn't until the later rounds that he actively looked for takedowns, 
But this time around, he went on the offensive and didn't wait for Pettis to be hurt first before trying to take the fight to the ground. Another neat addition was throwing knees to the opponent's head as they ducked under the clinch trying to escape. Like a matador, Diaz was waiting for Pettis to shift his head to the outside position to avoid hooks or another takedown attempt, only to eat a knee to the head. Diaz did a great job of digging his head under the jaw of Pettis, one of John Jones' favorite moves, and it kept Pettis from seeing what strikes Diaz was planning. He was able to force-feed him short hooks, uppercuts, and knees. In the second round, this sequence of attack actually dropped Pettis in rounds 2 and 3, and it didn't seem like something Pettis was prepared for. Diaz also channeled his inner Justin Gaethje and moved forward with both forearms up, shielding his face and inviting Pettis to throw hooks and straights so he can get the opportunity to return fire with one and twos and overhands. You last saw this when Nate Diaz fought Conor McGregor the second time around. When starting from rounds two to four, Diaz knew that simply eating the strikes in the left hands were no good, so he covered up, marched forward, and when McGregor was unsuccessful with his hooks and lefts, then Diaz was able to skewer him with his jabs, get close enough to clinch, and rough him up from there. When this fight hit the mat, it was clear that although Diaz is better, Pettis isn't that far behind. By making sure that he was the one initiating the grappling, Diaz had Pettis reacting instead of pursuing his own line of offense. Yes, Pettis was going for submissions, but it wasn't like he was on top, pounding out Diaz to get him to turn over and choke him or grab an arm. This was Pettis reacting to the offense that Diaz was putting on him. And most of the time, Diaz just shucked off the submission attempts and was happy to ground and pound him before going for another submission. All in all, this fight was vintage Diaz, and it almost seemed like a better version of the Diaz that fought Cowboy Cerrone and Michael Johnson, minus some pacing issues. Diaz also provided matchmaking duties for the night respectfully calling out Jorge Masvidal for the ultimate West Coast, East Coast showdown. I've never been more excited for a fight and never been more torn for who to root for. As for Pettis, he can still have some more fun fights at welterweight, but if Diaz was able to pressure Pettis and bully him around, I honestly don't know how he can handle the murderers at welterweight who can do blast doubles and keep him grounded. A matchup with Mike Perry might be fun for however long that lasts, or maybe against Carlos Condit? It's clear that Pettis has slowed down a notch, and if he just wants fun fights, why not give it to him? Now we have Yoel Romero versus Paulo Costa. Yoel Romero versus Paulo Costa lived up to all the hype, but it also fell short in some ways. As for the fight itself, Paulo Costa won a unanimous decision over Yoel Romero, with all the judges scoring this fight 29-28 for Costa. The majority of MMA outlets all scored the fight either 30-27 or 29-28 for Romero, and this fight was heavily booed by the fans in attendance. There was actually a moment post-fight where Romero was so confident he won, he kept his hands raised even though the referee lifted the arm of Costa. It's not hard to see why so many scored the fight for Romero, but a case can be made for Paulo Costa. There's a slide that popped up during the striking breakdown. And although Romero outstruck Costa, even if you combine the head and body strikes, there's one stat that favors the Brazilian, the nebulous octagon control. Oftentimes, the term can be replaced with aggression or pressure, 
But it's no secret that the judges will give the nod to whoever they feel is advancing and try to make the action happen. Romero's usual habit of playing defense and waiting to explode into movements usually ends up in a finish for him, but in a three-round fight, that's risky. One look at his record will show that the majority of his finishes have all come at the third round, and he's not always dominant up to that point. Costa was able to withstand the onslaught of Romero's jabs, kicks, and straights of his own to go the distance. Let's delve into some specific details. Romero is famous for being able to lull you into a false sense of safety by hanging back and letting you come to him. He usually uses this time to pace himself and prepare to lunge in on any possible openings he might see. Most of the time, his opponents are so worried about getting clipped early, so they'll hang back and stay tentative and not engage as much as they should. Robert Whitaker realized that the best way to beat Romero and to tire him out is to constantly attack him with a very striking arsenal favoring fast in-and-out movements and strikes that he can land from a distance to keep him safe. By pumping out feints, doubling, tripling his jab, utilizing his rear front kicks, low-line kicks, and the occasional head kick, Whitaker kept Romero at bay for the most part and won two fights back-to-back against him. It's hard for Romero to pace himself when he has to worry about defending strikes and staying on the back foot. It's tiring, and no matter how well-conditioned you are, by the time the fight enters the fourth round, you're going to be a bit slower and duller to react. Costa used constant forward pressure to keep Romero moving and switching from orthodox to southpaw. Other fighters might have opted to wait and see what Romero does before advancing, but Costa threw that caution to the wind and just kept moving forward. Costa did his best John Lineker impression and swung with meat hooks to Romero targeting his body and head. Although Costa had a hard time dealing with the cross guard and shoulder rolling of Romero when it came to head strikes, Romero suddenly decided to channel his inner Michael Jordan and stick his tongue out. Costa was having a lot of success landing flush hooks to Romero's body. As I talked about in the preview, Romero's use of the high cross guard is great at dissuading you from throwing hooks and straights, but it's vulnerable to body strikes. Costa's best strikes were his hooks to the body and kicks to Romero's legs and midsection. Combined with his constant forward movement, an argument can be made that he did enough to win the fight. Romero was able to slip a good chunk of the punches to the head, but it doesn't change the fact that he was still content in leaning back against the cage and let Costa tee off from time to time. Unless you slip and counter with the brutal KO strike, or at least knock down the other person, the fight will probably be favored for the fighter who's the one that doesn't have his back to the fence. Speaking of Romero, there were still a lot of things he did well in the fight, and he did answer some more questions we had about Paulo Costa. Even though he didn't attempt as many takedowns as some may have initially thought he would, Romero was able to take down Costa at times towards the end of the rounds, showing that Costa can be taken down. However, since Romero did most of his takedowns late in the round, it's hard to gauge what Costa's scrambling abilities and sweeps off his back look like. Costa also seemed to have no real answer for the jabs that Romero popped off with alarming accuracy in rounds 2 and 3. This was evident in the Uriah Hall fight, where Hall was lighting Costa up with jabs, and this seemed to be a problem that Costa needs to fix as soon as possible. It makes sense in the Hall fight, since Hall is a fearsome striker who's known for his lightning-quick speed, 
but Romero isn't a prolific jabber, and he actually does his best work in scrambles and getting you to overreact. If Romero is able to jab you consistently over and over again, how are you going to do against Whitaker and Adesanya, the two best jabbers in the division? Costa is going to have to fight one of them, and this is going to be a huge problem if he doesn't get that addressed. Part of the problem is that Costa is trying to land his hooks, and he has to choose between his offense or defense, and he'll almost always opt for his own offense and checking the hands or slipping and pivoting out of danger. To compound this problem, Romero was landing a lot of leg kicks on Costa, and Costa checked them only a few times. Costa is so fixated on landing his own round kicks to Romero that his lead left leg was completely open and able to be punted. Whitaker and Adesanya are also great kickers and can do it for all 5 rounds. Costa is a tough fighter with some dynamite in his hooks and some hard kicks, but if that's all he's going into the fights with, then it might not be the most successful in the long run. Romero could have won this fight, and many will argue that he did, but with just a tad bit more urgency and aggression, he could have sealed it up with an airtight case. As it stands, he let his usual strategy of leaning back and using the high cross guard take over at times where he should have been more aggressive. It made up for some great moments, especially in round 2 where he slipped the 5 punch combination from Costa, but he was still playing defense. By trying to finish Costa early in round 1, Romero had to play a bit more conservative game in rounds 2 and 3, and maybe just tweaking this part of the strategy could have been all he needed. After all, he lost the first rounds against guys like Chris Weidman, Tim Kennedy, and Luke Rockhold, but used it to read the movements and later finish his opponents. Romero is still an elite talent and can beat anyone in the division, but he's a 42-year-old fighter that lost twice to the current champ, and with this loss, he falls further back in line. With the refusal to move up to light heavyweight, we'll see who the UFC matches him up with. Maybe a fight against Kelvin Gastelum or a rematch with Derek Brunson might be in the cards for him. So next we have Rafael Asensal versus Corey Sandhagen. And let me start by saying no one gets as little respect or love as Rafael Asensal. I really feel bad for the guy. I'm not saying he gets disrespected either. It's more like he gets nothing. No reaction. After all these years... WEC and UFC and constantly winning fights, still no one cares about him. He's the real bantamweight no-love. So I'd like to say I'm in the Hafel Asunsao fan club. He's worthy of having fans in my book. Now, I have to say all this because other than that, I don't have all that much to say about Asunsao. This fight was all Corey Sanhagen. Sanhagen is longer than most of his opponents at bantamweight, And he uses that to full effect. Not by only striking from distance, but I mean, he has an extended strike zone. He's going to hit you not only from way over there, but all the way until he's face-to-face with you. Sanhagen led most of the fight by just walking forward. Not fast pressure, but rather consistent pressure. And he uses shifts and stance switches more as a way to close in on Asensal, rather than how Dillashaw uses it to set up a very specific strike. Sandhagen also relied a lot on hand fighting, like Daniel Cormier. But on top of that, he used a lot of front kicks. He was constantly doing something, no static moments. This doesn't take a lot of energy so long as you're not throwing everything hard. 
Frankie Edgar can last the whole fight because he has great conditioning. But if you look at how he hits, he never loads up or puts everything into a strike. He'd be much different in round five if he loaded up on all of his strikes. Now, Sanhagen would use the hand fight to disguise his strikes and maximize his reach advantage. Whereas DC used it because he didn't have that reach advantage. So they both used hand fighting, but used it in different ways. Sanhagen used it to disrupt the read of distance. And he could hand fight from further out because of his length. So he would hand fight, and when you're reaching to grab his hands, he'd leap in with a punch or a knee. He'd have you reaching high, then he'd crack you with a body shot. The front kicks too. He used it to hit you or step forward and close the distance, or used it to set up a question mark kick. You couldn't tell. One move, multiple purposes. When close, Sanhagen used hand fighting. When Azunsal backed away, creating distance, Sanhagen used the front kick. When Azunsal came forward, Sanhagen leaned back to avoid the punches and also used the front kick. And basically, it was rinse and repeat of that strategy. Since Azunsal is so good at fighting while backing up, the hand fighting really negated all of Azunsal's counters. Sanhagen is the opposite of Israel Adesanya when it comes to feints. Adesanya does more feints than attacks, but when he attacks, he hits hard. Sanhagen attacks way more than he feints, but still feints way more than any other high-volume striker. Like Max Holloway or Nate Diaz might throw one feint, then 10 punches. Sanhagen will throw a feint, then a strike, a feint, then a strike, at a rapid clip. And since he has you constantly off rhythm and resetting off a strike that didn't come, he then lands his high-volume strikes with much better accuracy. It's like Adesanya accuracy with Holloway volume. Also, Sanhagen would mess with the distancing by leaning in when he hand fights. So when he has to lean in to load up for a flying knee, it appears to be a benign hand fight attempt at first. And he used a lot of pull counters like that. Lean in, then pull back. To kick, to knee, to hook. Even from his last fight with John Lineker, Corey Sanhagen looks much more polished and developed. But part of that can be due to Sanhagen training with TJ Dillashaw when Dillashaw was preparing for the Azenzao rematch. So did Sanhagen get that much better between this and his last fight? Or does he know Azenzao so well that he looks better than he is? We don't know yet. Now, Azenzao began to switch stances as well, but it really didn't help as stance switching wasn't really important for the offense of Sanhagen, so it didn't really negate anything. Sanhagen used the stance switches more as a way to close distance, to switch directions, or kick with a different leg. So more of the traditional martial art use for the stance switch, rather than the boxing or kickboxing stance switch purpose, which is to set up a killing blow. But for offense, rather than orthodox or southpaw, what mattered more as far as his variety was forward and back attacks, meaning while leaning in or while pulling out, while coming forward, while backing out, and also a variety of strikes, kicks versus punches, or the areas of strikes, body shots, leg strikes, head strikes, and also the distance of strikes from close range to from outside range. So switching stances to hit with the power hand wasn't that major of a factor in this fight. But for TJ Dillashaw, that's a really important use. But for someone like Dominic Cruz, 
stance switching helps him sway his body and move out of the way of strikes. And then for someone like Israel Adesanya, he uses it to close in on his opponent, kind of like Corey Sandhagen. So a lot of different concepts can be applied to stance switching. But in this fight, it was all Corey Sandhagen for three rounds, beating Asensal by unanimous decision. We've talked previously about bad fainting, pointless movement, and random stance switching. But Sandhagen is a young fighter who can do all these things much better than most. So he's one to watch for sure. With that said, that's it for this episode. So long and goodbye. Goodbye.